Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm going to keep the intro really quick today. Alex Edelman is my guest. He's one of the best young comedians in the entire world. I really love Alex. He's a really uh, fascinating guy to talk to, uh, has a brilliant, um, unique world perspective. Um, we had a great chat off air about the fact that he's just been touring around opening for Beck in the US. It didn't make the podcast because we just had a chat off air about it and we had other things to talk about on the podcast. But uh, check out his show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and other places you can find him. Alex Edelman is his name. Uh, my show, Will Eagle, has two weeks ago at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. It is selling out pretty quick, so uh, I would be getting in quick if you want to come and see it in Melbourne. Then I'm going to Perth for the Perth Comedy Festival, Canberra, Sydney, uh, all on sale at the moment. So get in if you want to see Will Eagle. There you go. This is going to be the shortest intro ever. We have uh, a Twitter and a Facebook and a Instagram and all those sort of things where you can follow uh, Willosophy Pod. So look those up, uh, you know, share the pod around, rate it on iTunes if you would like to do that. That would be handy for us. Uh, get people to know that the podcast is back. Hope you enjoy this one with Alex. So many Australians there, all watching the Western Bulldogs game, but there were other big games on. So you have people competing. Basically. And I also still don't fully know the rules. Nobody so, does. So That's I'm just part watching, of the... and there's a guy sitting next to me, and I'm rooting really hard for the Bulldogs, but like, I don't know what's happening. So I'm like, is, is that good? And they're like, yeah, yeah, of course it's good. It's... <laughs> Wait, how are you a fan? I was like... I've got this friend, and I kind of was just name dropping. I was like Will Anderson. They're like, you know Will Anderson? And I was like, yeah, he made me a bulldog fan. Like, <laughs> I love that about you. I was just telling uh, podcast Mike about this before you arrived, uh, which was that uh, you went and saw a game, but then you really went and did your research afterwards. That's like part of oh. your personality. Oh, I wanted to. There's a guy named Tom Brady on the team, and there was someone named uh, There's someone who had the same name as a Patriots player. So I was like, might as well look up all of these guys. <laughs> But there was one guy who was really good and really young, and you're really psyched about him. Uh, Marcus Bontempelli? Yes. Yes. I am still psyched about him. Good. He's still our best player. I don't want to be like, how's he doing? But like, yeah, He plays it in another team. No, he doesn't. He's <laughs> oh the God. best, and we still have him. He's our only hope. All right. Uh, hello, and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, the voice that you've probably heard a little bit about already because, you know, we probably will just run a little bit of that because, mm. you know, that's the kind of relaxed podcast we run around this sort of place. And yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, who are you? That's how I start this podcast. I ask who you are. Um, my, it's so funny because I'd be, my name's Alex Edelman. I'm a comedian from Boston and I'd be tempted to give like a clever answer, but I was trying to record an interview with somebody who's like an Israeli, like really interesting Israeli guy, like a fighter pilot slash like billionaire, like really smart dude. And I said, who are you? And he said, um, I'm just a farmer boy who's managed to convince people that he's something other than that. And I thought, bullshit. So I hate like doing it like, uh, who am I? Well, I'm just, but yeah, I'm a comedian. Well, I, I got to be honest with you. I love that because I am just a farmer boy who's managed to convince people that oh, I'm something else. You. So. <laughs> You're not. You're a good comedian. At some point you become more than a metaphor or like an allegory or like a character type. You are 
who you are. So like, when do you become that? That's an interesting topic to me. I like, I like that framing of that, that idea of being, uh, I am now not what the story of my past is. I am now my own thing. When when does that happen? You're more than a narrative. When you become specifically invested in the process of what you do and you blend that with your personal life, like one of my favorite, I'm like, I don't want to be pretentious, but one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite sayings uh, from Nabokov is that uh, when you start, <laughs> shut up. When you start as a writer, you're a blend of all the writers that you love, right? And then y- you become a more sophisticated blend. But in that, you become your own thing. So I always wonder when that happens for comedians or professionals or even people who don't do creative stuff. Like when you become your own specific thing. Like, you know, people will say, I'm sure there are some young Australian comics who, when they're asked what kind of career they want, they say they'd like to be Will Anderson. But I'm sure you had that at some point where someone said, what kind of career do you want? And you thought, oh, I'd like to be X with a little bit of Y and like, you know, Y with a little bit of Z. So like, as soon as you devote yourself to whatever your craft is and start doing it professionally, that is when you become more than the sum of, uh, you know, more than just like one aphorism. So uh, you're absolutely right, of course. When I first started doing comedy, I wanted to be a whole range of different people, sure. um, including some names that people will know, like Greg Fleet and Anthony Morgan. And sure. uh, they were the kind of, you know, comedians of the time who I, I really saw. like Anthony Morgan, by the way. I mean, two of the funniest men you've ever seen, and I got to see them at their peak. I mean, I remember one night at the Prince Patrick Hotel, you know, a venue that doesn't exist anymore, but was like the best. It was the place you saw the best comedy, you know. And uh, Morgs did a 40-minute set. He was doing this weekly show with some other people and he'd do new material every single week. And he told a 40-minute story about uh, going down on this woman. Like, and that was like, the whole story was about that. And he described like what it felt like to be inside her and stuff. And it was like watching... Leonard Cohen or like, you know, some fucking beat poet or something that was so much more than just a story about a guy going down on a woman. I can imagine Leonard Cohen doing 40 minutes at a coffee table about, (laughs) and I went down on her. I could hear the roses, you know, like just for real, something so gross. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's like, yeah, you start wanting to be that. Although, you know, as I say that, I do think that like I'm one of those guys who values their professional life as a big part of the personal life. And some people really separate those two things and they prioritize probably correctly their personal life over their professional life. And the two may be very distinct. So maybe those people stop becoming that specific aphorism when, you know, they mature into adult relationships or have a child or something like that and develop their own specific way of parenting or their own specific way of being a son or brother or friend. So as soon as you develop something and really lean confidently into it, I think it's unfair for you to be like, I am just simply a blank who has managed to tell people that he isn't a blank. Like, fuck you. Like, you're more than that. You know you're more than that. And and you're trying to be modest in a really false way by describing yourself. And by the way, when he said it, I was like, ooh, you know. <laughs> oh, man, this is great. But then 10 minutes later, while we were still doing the interview, I was like, 
That's bullshit. He doesn't. <laughs> does he really think of himself that way? Does he walk around as a farmer boy dressed in farmer boy clothes and people are like, are you a farmer boy? He's like, I'm not a farmer boy. And they're like, okay. And he's like, I'm just a farmer boy. He's managed to convince people that he's not a farmer boy. I'm like, no, he is literally this guy. His name is Kobe Richter. He's a genius. He um, invented a medical device company, or he created a medical device company in Israel after a very successful and deadly career as one of Israel's best fighter pilots. He's one of the first men to shoot down a MiG. And uh, he's had really interesting life. And still, when he said that to me, I was like, you're full of shit, Kobe. You're just, you're a total genius who... uh, It just probably reminds you of being a farmer boy shooting rabbits on the farm. Oh, yeah. He's big. It's just the the rabbit is a $21 trillion project from the Soviet Union that bankrupted everyone. And, you know, like he's an incredible... uh, Okay. Uh, You got into an interesting idea that I'd like to talk about a bit more, which is this the, the combination of the professional and the personal. Yeah. And, you know, how people delineate that, right? You know, I I think that's an interesting topic. And look, you know, I don't have children and I'm in my mid-40s now. So I've had the great luxury of, you know, having a child, which is my professional child, you know, comedy can be the thing that I put the thinking into the worrying about the, you know, all these sort of things. Do you think that, you know, if you get married, you have a child, you, you know, do these sort of things that people do, that you are the sort of person that will still incorporate comedy into your life in the same way? Or do you think that you might then prioritize it in a different way? Like, how do you feel about that? It's so funny, because I do think I, I want to answer your question directly, but it feel but like it's going to sound like I'm not. So, like, I think a really important, like, I keep my personal and professional life separate in some ways. Like, I consciously include in my act a few facts that I've decided on a few years ago that are different from my personal life. Like, in my act, my brother's a twin. He's not. He's a year and a half younger than me. But I always, almost two years younger than me. But I just, for some reason, the comedian has a twin. And, like, I've talked about it on stage, talked about it on Conan. And people are like, people come up to me in the street and tell me about their twin, you know, their twin brother also. And I'm like, "Uh, this is going to really fucking disappoint you. And I'm sure you're not expecting this. But, like, I keep my personal and professional life really separate. And, like, part of my show this year is about how, like, I feel really uncomfortable with, with, uh, with giving everything away on stage. I feel really uncomfortable with this new confessional style, not just of comedy, but in everyday life where people are willing to trade deep, dark, personal secrets about mental health on Facebook for like 300 likes. And I think that really like, some stuff should be inviolate. Some stuff should be just for you. Some stuff should be a thing that you really hold sacred and taking someone into a circle of trust is really intimate gesture as opposed to just, you know, something that you do um, for I think that, a professional thing. I think that's a really interesting thing because I do think that you can do both, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, this show that I'm doing at the moment is about like a one-hour flight that ended up in me getting arrested. The entire sure. show takes place in 30 hours from when I left home to when I get home. Sure. Right? It feels very personal and you learn a lot about me and what happened that day and sure. all those sort of things. But at the same time, for me, who also lived... 364 other days last year mm-hmm. it's actually not as not personal to away. share because i'm not giving all that other stuff about my life away that you know i do every day i think that's really healthy well i think it's a really healthy thing because like i think a lot about like robin williams who didn't even talk that much 
about his you know life or personality on stage but he really gave a lot of himself and i always wonder if like you know it's not it's none of my business genuinely because he was also a human being besides one of the world's greatest comics but i always wonder like did he give too much and is that like a cautionary tale for comedians because the affection that you receive back from an audience isn't real affection they're responding to um, a combination of your material and you know what they thought of you when they came in they're not actually relating to you personally and there are moments of connection between an audience and a performer and those are really important connections that truly great comedians make but um i also think that if you just throw everything at an audience and you give out every detail of your personal life it creates it means those moments aren't as rare and i think like you know, like that show about that flight, I'm sure there are moments where you reveal a little bit of your personality that, or a little, like one thing about you that really gives the audience a glimpse into like a much bigger persona. Maybe like even dedicated fans of yours who've been coming to see you at the festival for, you know, double digit years. Um, I'm sure that there's like a new, a new detail or a new thing. But like I think the I think making sure those moments are scarce and really understanding their intrinsic value is really important. And but like that was a side point. The larger point is to an- finally answer your question. Like I think comedy sort of imbues my professional life and in a in, in a way it it touches my personal life. But I've never wanted to be one of those comics who's always on. So like I think part of comedy is being laid on your feet and like always on the balls of your feet and like, you know, like a little bit more self-awareness than the average muggle. But like, you know, being uh, <laughs> a stupid way to describe regular people is like the non-magicians from Harry Potter. No, but, I like it because it yeah. also brings a bit of youthful credibility to this podcast. <laughs> oh, good, yes. Yeah. Uh, Nabokov didn't do it early. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you're covering a lot of bases. That's what yeah. I, that's yeah. what I'm enjoying. Sure, but the, but like, all you the know, great authors. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, you know, the guy who wrote Winnie the Pooh really was onto something. Man. But um, but yeah, I think just being a little more self-aware than the average human being. So like if I have kids, I would raise them with sort of, I wouldn't want my kids to ever be comedians, but I'd certainly want them to have sort of like an eye for like the sardonic and an acceptance of irony and a, like an unacceptance for humorlessness that I would hope to see in like a good comic. And by the way, like you say that your, your career is your child, but you know, you also have sort of a reputation, at least among internationals. Um, and I guess among uh, some, some Australians that we, we, it's not a topic of discussion much, but like, you know, you're quite, uh, you get respect and, genuine love that you'd get from children and you've you know a spirit of generosity and sort of like an air of mentorship that like a lot of younger comics i think like i do think you can uh you can have healthy relationships like as father figures that aren't you know that aren't that you don't just get from kids i know having a kid's a special thing probably okay so uh something that i was interested in what you were saying was that you know that you have a brother and so it's close enough to the truth but it's 
but you, as you said, you know, he's the twin in the act, which is actually not the truth. Yeah. Uh, what I found a little bit hard in my life as I've got older and older and I've told more jokes about, you know, essentially what you're talking about, myth- mythological reframing of things for sure. a comedic purpose, right? You know, that I am this... The reason that I do a bit at the start of the show about me growing up on the farm is that otherwise my show is like a middle-class, you know, well-to-do guy complaining about, you know, bad service he got on a fucking flight. <laughs> you know, you've got to yeah. kind of... Yeah. I'm refla- reframing this and telling the audience it's more important to who I am than probably that it is on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Sometimes when you start telling those stories over and over, how do you differentiate in your mind from which is the real version of that story. Good question. I don't lie much. And I'm super conscious of my lies. Like, uh, I also am really careful with the truth. Like, my show this year is about... Um, I get a lot, I've been getting a lot of anti-Semitism lately, which is partially my fault, because, you know, I'll do a political tweet knowing that, you know, anti-Semites will see it or that certain Nazis searching keywords will see it, and I'll sort of brace myself for the reaction. So... I'm checking one of these guys' tweets and uh, I keep a list of all the people who sent me hate stuff because the name of the list and they get a notification when they're added is um, Jewish National Fund contributors. <laughs> so I get a lot of tweets from Nazis like going, take me off your list. I've never contributed to the Jewish National Fund. And I'm always like, you know, there's like still time. And like, and so I check the list occasionally and, uh, <laughs> And one of these guys tweeted about, like, I was in New York, and one of these guys tweeted about, like, a get-together that he was going to of basically other like-minded people, and I thought, I should go to that. So I went, and, like, that's sort of, like, the center of the show, like, me going to this, like, meeting of Nazis. What made you want to do that? I was so curious, and I also didn't think they'd hurt me, and they didn't, but, like... Well, firstly, here's what I will say, is that I... Did not read an article on the weekend, but I read the headline. So that's the greatest way that we should, you know, assume what's going on in the world. Uh, but about the recent rise of anti-Semitism. There's a lot of it. It's, do you think it is back a bit? Is, do you yeah, feel like I'm, there is... I'm also quite surprised because I didn't think... I've been really reluctant to accept that anti-Semitism's back. Really, really reluctant because in my mind, it's very passe. And I haven't heard anyone respect it, articulate it in a very long time. And like sublimated anti-Semitism takes a lot for me to agree with. I don't think I've ever yelled like that's anti-Semitic unless someone's like, I hate Jews and Jews control everything. Like that's what it would take for me to be like, "Mm, this guy might be an (laughs) anti-Semite. But there was, uh, I'm not a detective, but uh, I think that the guy who's pointing at the Jewish star, like, like Donald Trump tweeted an image that was like the head of Jewish star in it. People were like, it's a code. And I was like, it's not a code. He's a bad guy. But he's, I also sat next to his son-in-law for two years in synagogue. So I really think his son-in-law might take issue with, uh, but like, but you know, I do think he doesn't want to lose anti-Semites sometimes and Right. I he he might not be anti-Semitic, but he uh, thinks that the anti-Semite you know, is part of his, base, base. his fan base. Yeah. And he also, um, <laughs> I also think he hates some Jews because Jews in Manhattan have always turned their nose up at Donald Trump because he's been super tacky since he started. And it's really not the Jewish way in Manhattan philanthropy circles to fucking put your name on a building. So Jews have always been like, oh, Donald Trump's a little bit... Like he's he's not at our dinners and stuff, so I'm sure Trump doesn't like certain Jews. But yeah, yeah. anti-Semitism. 
is back only because um, I think people have started. I want to pick my words very carefully, but I think people have started to um, look at groups and go, that group's oppressed, that group's oppressed, that group is not oppressed, and that group doesn't get to claim oppression. And so I think certain people have looked at Jews and really resented the way that a group that is privileged in many, many ways. We do have a tremendous amount of privileged Jews, and they go, that's not oppressed enough. And they're not thinking, let's oppress them more, but they are denying the oppression in such an outspoken way that it's sort of given, um, it's sort of given credence to people who dislike Jews and emboldened people to make old comparisons by saying Jews are in power again and Jews secretly run the media. And so, yeah, anti-Semitism is absolutely making a comeback on the, I'm describing it like the spin doctors are doing another tour, but like, that's what it feels like. It really does. It feels like, like it feels as surprising to me as if you were telling me that the spin doctors were doing another tour. Yeah. And they're playing Madison square garden five nights in a row. And it's already sold out. You know, that's what it is. It's not the fact that the spin doctors have got back together. (laughs) I'm not surprised by that. I understand everybody's got to make a living, but they're pulling such big numbers. They really are. They're selling (laughs) loads of tickets all over the world. And like, it is troubling, and also, um, this makes me feel a little naive, and I don't get into this in my show. I have been dismayed by anti-Semitism or an ignoral of anti-Semitism from people who I've really liked in groups that I really wouldn't want to see anti-Semitism from. Like, I'm quite lefty, mm. and so I do think there's been not... There, there's been some anti-Semitism on the left, but more than that, it's people who are sort of left-wing radicals, like in the States, there's a preacher named Louis Farrakhan. And he said, oh, the Jews control the FBI and the media. And that, and, and right there, I was like, again, not a detective, but that 100% sounded like anti-Semitism <laughs> to me. And some people who I admire and respect and follow on Instagram and Twitter put up selfies with him from that same day. And I was like, um... Maybe you didn't know this, but I'm not sure if you heard the speech he gave 25 minutes after you took the selfie, but I'd really love for you to say that you didn't agree with what's in the speech. And they were like, oh, well, we're not going to condemn this Farrakhan. He's done a lot of great things for people. And I was like, well, he is the one who killed Malcolm X, and he is also the one who just said all that stuff about Jews and gay people, so if you wouldn't mind. So like, <laughs> so it's really weird, because I'm looking for apologies from people that I really like and right. don't often want to apologize. So it's not also just a surprising numbers on on the far right that's always been a that's that's been a thing for a little while it's not just the kkk there's people from like marches that i've gone to who are putting up with it and i'm like i don't i don't want to be i don't want to be with those people who what say, what i'm hearing is we finally have an opportunity to bring the right and the left together <laughs> yeah on an issue that everybody agrees with. yeah jews <laughs> jews this, the group of people everyone loves to hate. <laughs> it didn't Got work it. with the last guy, but we're going to roll it around again. What the, but it's so weird to me because I'm like, because my I'm like, shit, are my grandparents right that there are always people who hate Jews? And I've never heard anti-Semitism in the way that friends speak until this year. I Someone made a comment and it sort of startled me. I was like, oh, well, I was like, hey, you know, that's wrong. He said something. He's like, well, you know, Jews... He said, Jews control 100% of the TV networks in the States. And right away, I was like, maybe? I don't know if that's true. I was like, we're, prob- we're doing a really good job if that's true. <laughs> 
TV is America's number one export with no exceptions. It's a one and a half trillion dollar a year industry. So it's possible that that's true. But then I was like, hey, I'm not sure that's right. And he's like, he's like, you should just admit that you guys run. And then I was like, you guys? you guys, I was like, I'm unemployed. I have been writing. I, don't, I wrote on a sitcom for a year, but that's gone. And this Jew would really like those Jews to give me a job. I so may like, be handy, right? Yeah. I, I mean, like, if it is true, then. Yeah, I should be bringing it up at the meeting on Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, I knew there was a reason that Seinfeld was a successful show. I yeah. could never understand why Jews. otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so weird because some of these, I want to be like, you're, it, to paraphrase Gary Goldman, one of the great U.S. comics, um, he says, uh, what kills him about Ahmadinejad is that you know he has a Seinfeld box set. <laughs> He's like, you know, he loves Jerry and George and he quotes, he goes, yada, yada, yada in his meetings about killing Jews. Like, he just, like, there are all these people, and I want to be like, if you've ever watched a color television or you don't have legs crippled from polio, you owe a Jew. Right. So maybe don't uh, don't use our shit. So, okay. So sorry, yeah, this is, no, no. Sorry this, about this tangent. No, I like this tangent. This is because, you know what? It feels to me like something, it says something bigger. And I don't know what it says, like, but I do feel it's a sign of all these things that are going wrong is this rise of something that makes absolutely no sense. Can I say one more thing about it? Yes. I think if I want to sum that all up, it's that like the thing that's bothered bothers me the most about anti-Semitism is, or this rise of anti-Semitism is like, I really don't like victimhood and I really don't like claiming it. And I really don't like being one. And part of the history of Judaism that really bothers me is this history totally deserved and not of our own fault for the for the most part of being a victim? And I really don't want to be a victim, and uh, I really don't want to have to uh, be always on my back foot looking for anti-Semitism. And I really don't like outrage, and I really don't like claiming it. Like I said, I want to raise my kids just never worrying about why the scoreboard isn't in their favor. And I don't judge anyone else for claiming victimhood, um, but like. I really don't want to be one. So, so it's something that really bothers me. And so like, that's why I went to that meeting. Cause I was so curious to see like what they thought of Jews. I'm always curious about how people really feel. Um, how did you know that that was something that, did you know going to it thinking, oh, this might be something that I'll write about or talk about? Or did you go to it and then discover within that experience that it was something? In. 10 yeah. minutes in, I was like, this is, this is my show. Right. <laughs> like, I was also, I had to do a show at the Soho. So essentially, you two have weeks. to really thank the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, 10 minutes in, I was Finally, like, you guys are even. 10 minutes in, I was like, this shit's great. You know, like, <laughs> like, this is the best material. Because people were saying stuff that if you just printed that alone on a poster or a newspaper article, you'd be like, people are saying that in public. And like, uh, but even then, though, I was also filtering. I was like... When I repeat this, and I will repeat, I wasn't sure. I wasn't like this in my show, but I was like, oh, well, this is material. This is a, something that's happening to me. There are funny details in this. I thought, what bits am I going to keep for myself? And what bits will I be willing to say to people? And what bits will I falsify? And what bits will be 
like how will I simplify how will I oversimplify this for the stage or how will I overcomplicate this for the stage and like there was a professional part of me that I switched into and I had to be really not careful but I was like all right well I should make sure that I don't act performatively here right right like that would be a really weird thing to do and then I started thinking about like I started to pathologize that like while I was sitting there because I also had the luxury of spacing out for big portions of that it was long it was like two hours and like I kept thinking about like why am I here like why am I at this meeting like what does this say about me that I'm here and I got really embarrassed at one point I was like this is not something an almost 30 year old should do I was 28 but I was like fucking this is very this is very unprofessional probably and this is like very undignified and every time I speak up because I spoke up a little bit and then you I spoke like, up a little bit yeah they talked about social media and I was like oh I actually have some thoughts about that and like and then at the end they found and how that was out. that received well the end the, the end went a little bit pear-shaped maybe I'll maybe I'll not say that okay. in case people want us to come see the show yeah, but no, there no. was one moment that really um there was I saw something sitting on a table and I thought and it just almost felt like it was highlighted to me. And I thought, then I kept looking back at it. It was a, it was a board game. And I kept looking back at it thinking like, it's just such a funny detail that, <laughs> that Nazis have a backgammon board. And like, <laughs> I just kept looking at this and like, it hasn't made an appearance in my act, yeah. but in my mind, if I ever like, like for some reason that seems like a really private detail or a detail that's not I know I'm saying it on your podcast, but like for some reason I was like, this detail does not seem like it's for an audience. This detail feels like it's for me. And I wonder if that's a healthy lifestyle to go through life and be like, that copy of that book is for me, but the copy above it is for public consumption. And that copy of that book is for, like me just seeing stuff and like you've got a copy of Ready Player One sitting there, and I'm just like well, you know, maybe I won't tell people about it. Maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just have like, as if they almost have a right to everything and you have to exclude certain bits from it. It's a little bit insane, no? It is. I, I'm, I'm very fascinated by all this, uh, but well, I do have to ask you if sure, you have, sure. have a philosophy towards anything because that is kind of the vague conceit of the podcast. Sure, and sure. normally if I, you know, don't ask that question, people, imaginary sure, people, sure. by the way, I don't actually feel like I do get a great deal of feedback from people going, you asked the question too late or you didn't ask it. No, but no, no. In my head, well, I've built up all these people. Sw- you can cut out a big swath of that anti-Semitism. Oh, no, 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 we don't cut. Oh, really? No, 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 this is the... This is part of the appeal of it, I imagine. Again, Fuck. these imaginary people I'm getting feedback from. Yeah. Who I mean, ima- does anyone actually listen to the podcast? Well, people Yeah, don't. a lot, I but I, I don't read in, any of the feedback, so I have to invite <laughs> you know, imaginary people into my head to have these debates about what I think. Well, you don't ask a question enough. Yeah, so essentially um, the, it's what I think about the podcast is what I'm really saying. So, uh, but I philosophy? Do, yeah, do you have one towards anything? It doesn't have to be. I have a few, and I've okay. thought about this when you asked me. I literally took a few minutes to like sit down and just, <laughs> I called my dad. I was like, dad, you know, what, what are, is that okay? Is that cheat? I was like, dad, what are, and he didn't really have a good answer. He just asked me the same question. He's like, well, what's your personal philosophy? And I was like, fucking really unhelpful dad. <laughs> It's so unhelpful. I mean, I it was really, like a practice guy, though, because like I mean, I was going to ask it at some stage. Sure, sure. Um, I think something that's always worked for me is um, this is not my my boss had this philosophy when I worked at baseball. He said, "What you do with your life should be the intersection of your passion and your talent." And I always thought that was a really useful, handy 
confirmation for me that I was doing comedy and enjoying it because it is the both the intersection of my passion and my talent. But I think a personal philosophy for me has been understanding what I'm passionate about and what I'm really, you know, what I'm really curious in. And I really think part of, uh, I really think a good, healthy way to live your life professionally is to, to use the same word, to use a word again, not pathologize what you're interested in, not worry if it's too cool or not cool enough, or if everybody likes it, or if you should be somewhere, or if you shouldn't be somewhere, and just sort of lean into what you like. And uh, lean into uh, lean into having days where you're not productive, and lean into movies that are bad that you enjoy. Like, I really think no one's ever regretted going further down a rabbit hole of something that they that they're interested in, especially in a job like ours. I really think like enjoying small details and big things, and and um, I want to make sure I do this concisely, but just really reveling in stuff that in stuff that you like or interrogating stuff that you like i think there's no way it can't work it can't work out for you i think it's a really good way to be happy and so i've always done that i've always been like if there uh there's a bad side to it which is fear of missing out and that can really um that can really eat away at you when you're not doing other stuff but like i've i want to travel so now i travel and I want to do comedy abroad, and so now I do comedy abroad. And I'm sort of coming to the end of that where I'm not positive I want to do that anymore, and I'm fine with that. So, like, I don't blame past me for wanting to travel more, and I won't blame future me for wanting to, like, find a base in a city and, like, build my career out of there. Like, just being okay with what you like, being okay with your desires, and um, and sort of having a healthy handle on all that, I think that's a really good... Uh, I think that's a really good philosophy. So there's a couple of things that I want to unpack in that. One is I've been thinking about this a lot recently and it's the idea of that everybody liking something has nothing to do with whether I like it or not. Sure. So sure. many of the favorite things I have, be they the favorite, my favorite book is not the biggest book in the world. My favorite movie is not the biggest movie in the world. My favorite podcast is not the biggest podcast in the world, sure. right? Yet I have trouble differentiating that idea in my own life. You know, that meaning so, what? Well, in that, because we are also makers of things. Sure. Like, if anyone ever says, you know, say, for example, like, this is my favorite podcast, my immediate thought is you don't listen to enough podcasts. Sure, there is of heaps course. Better, there is heaps better things. Of course. And you're, and you're probably right. And they'd probably be right about you if they said you probably don't. For a while, my favorite movie was a truly awful movie. Actually, it was based on a book by an Australian author called The Power of One. Oh, yeah. Bryce, Bryce Courtney. Courtney. And uh, <laughs> it's a truly bad book. It's like, um, with great respect to, I think he died two years ago, with great respect to Bryce Courtney, he sat down and it was like, what if someone told the story of the end of apartheid, but from the white side? Yeah. <laughs> And he made this movie. And the funny thing is, once I was at a table in, in uh, at like some uh, restaurant with some friends, and this guy was talking about movies he had made. And this guy John Avildsen, who is a director who did Rocky, but like he did, he got to do Rocky because basically people were like, "Rocky's gonna be a shitty movie, and you do shitty movies." And he's done a few really 
big hits, but they were all like out of nowhere hits. Nobody was seeking them out. And they were talking about bad movies. And I went, man, one of my favorite movies is like one of the worst movies ever made. It's called The Power of One. And I'm talking about it. And like halfway through, like uh, I noticed like a look on someone's face. And I was like, that's weird. And like I finished talking and John Avildsen was like, oh, I directed that movie. And I was like, no, no. What? What do you mean? You directed The Power of One? He's like. Yeah, yeah, I directed The Power of One. And he was like, how do you know who wrote the script but you didn't know who directed the movie? I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's written by the guy who did The Karate Kid, Robert Mark Kamen. And it was like his effort to be like profound and like, and it's really sappy and it's genuinely, you watch the movie and you're like, this is bad, but someone tried so hard. And it, for some reason that like, really clicked for me. I read it, I, or not read it. I saw it because I, when I was a kid, I would just go through the DVD collection at the library and watch movies at like one and a half speed with like headphones on. So, so like I saw a lot of movies, truly great movies in like the worst way possible, which is like people were talking really fast. Like, uh, <laughs> like and I, I'm like reading the movie a lot, but I just want to see every movie. And like for some reason, the power of one at one and a half speed with headphones on when you're 13 years old is like the greatest movie ever. So, so um, yeah, sorry. you'll enjoy this. Never apologize. My point is um, never apologize. And also, maybe you haven't seen enough movies. <laughs> maybe you haven't seen enough movies. Well, that's probably true as well. But yeah. but the joy that you can get out of, for example, like there are movies that I would rate if you were asking me what are the 10 best movies of all time, then Con Air is never going to make that list, right? <laughs> but if Con Air is on television... And you I fucking, am passing by. Oh my god! I just sit down and end up watching however much of Con Air that I have the time and availability to watch. And so, on a kind of pound for pound basis, Con Air has probably brought me more sort of joy and entertainment than some other movies I would put high on the list. Hundred percent. Right? But like one of my favorite movies is Warrior. Have you ever seen Warrior? Okay. So, firstly, I just want to complete this thought, which is uh, we had to watch The Power of One at at school. Are you serious? Yeah, because that movie, like Bryce Courtney's book, was like a huge book in this country. Was it? And then it got made into a movie, and we had to like read it and watch it at school. So every oh Australian God. kid knows the movie you're oh, talking no about. Way. It was in an America, educational no movie saw it. in Australia. No one saw it in Australia. I'm sorry, in America, no one. It's like it's not on cable anywhere. It's not on Netflix. Like it was. De- DVD copies in a library. Like, that's how it was done. Yeah, Bryce Courtney's like an Australian, like, uh, icon, you know. Is he really? And um, he also was an advertising copywriter previous to that. I saw that on, on Wikipedia. And he day. wrote one of the most iconic uh, Australian jingles of all time, which was for this iconic uh, character. It's like a mosquito thing called Louis the Fly. And he's like a gangster, like... I have no mosquito. idea if you're fucking with me, but I'm no, trusting No, no, no. Yeah. Like, the, the thing was like, I'm Louis the Fly, Louis the Fly, straight from rubbish dumps to you. And anyway, it's this iconic, like, still exists, Louis the Fly. And Bryce Courtney also wrote that. So there you really? go. Really? Yeah. So he wrote The Power of One and the Louis the Fly jingle. Yeah, exactly. But like... <laughs> <laughs> But like, what about what? A, the funny thing is, you watch a movie like Con Air or a movie that's not considered great, and you go, "What about that movie appealed to me? Was it the? Was it? I thought they did the story of two brothers really well, and I have a brother, and I really care about him, but we don't always communicate well, so maybe that resonated with me." Like or, Warrior, you mean? Yeah, Sorry. have you seen Warrior? You said, yeah, so. Tom Hardy and, and Joel Edgerton. Joel Edgerton play yeah. the movie is ridiculous. It's a, it's a truly 
corny movie where like these two brothers are MMA fighters and they both wind up facing each other. And no one knows that they're brothers till like right before the big match. And it's like, and the father always favored one over the other, which is part of the, the part of the storyline. And the yeah. other brother's estranged and like, and Tom know. Hardy to prepare for the role did uh, push ups by standing on his head and then like shrugging his shoulders. So he could build up his like big MMA. Really? Body. Yeah. That's a really, that's like, I didn't know that, but like, yeah, the movie is fucking great. And Daniel you've got, you've got into a good awesome. area for me, which is things about Tom Hardy you might not know. Are you a big Tom Hardy fan? Oh, I love Tom Hardy. Is that like your mastermind subject? Like, have you? Hey, what does Jonathan Nolan have against Tom Hardy that his face is covered in every movie that he does? No, I think it's the opposite. I think like they're like Tom, will you come and do this movie? And and he's like, yeah, but I don't really want to have to go to makeup and like sit in a chair. Like, I just oh. can I just be in your war movie uh, for like an hour and a half with a mask on and the Bane mask? No, we'll get a different mask. No, different That's mask. A- we start with the Bane mask, but we put another thing up. Like, I don't want to hear Tom Hardy's voice clearly, and I don't want to see his face. He goes, I guarantee to do it. But you know, like, when sometimes you get a big movie star, and they've clearly, they're not actually in the movie. They've filmed all their scenes separately. Like, Tom Hardy's roles sometimes feel a bit like that. He goes, like, I'll do it, but you've got six days. I'm going to film all my bits, and I'm not going to make up. But that's exactly how sometimes you watch these movies, like The Avengers and Fanny War, and they're just like, they just shot this around, like, Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow and all the Hemsworth brothers besides the shit one. And, like, they've just shot everybody separately, so everyone's in, like, a reverse angle. And, like, someone will be taught. There's never a two-shot. There's always, like, different one-shots of, like... And then you just see the shoulder, like Superman's shoulder as Batman's. And I'm like, oh, these people were never in the same room ever. It's kind of incredible. Yeah. How'd you enjoy working with the other cast members? I actually haven't met him. I only met him today <laughs> yeah. for this press junket. Yeah. It was a real pleasure. This is my first time. Hey, do you know Ben Affleck's a really great guy? Like, I just met him tonight. We've done six movies together. So if you are going to throw yourself into your passions, which is sure, like sure. what we were talking about, how do you firstly decide what it is that you're passionate enough about to throw yourself into i think you have to be super honest with yourself about like what you a lot of uh, some of this is about being honest with yourself and like it's really hard to to do that and like by the way this sounds like i don't want to treat this lightly in terms of like oh what i mean by uh, understanding what you're passionate about is like a certain kind of uh airport book go ahead and read james patterson and dan brown forever like what i mean is like understanding that you care about certain traits. And if you want conversation, go for conversation. If you want some quiet, go for quiet. Like, like, um, sorry, what was your question? I no, sure it's about like choosing. Well, about choosing. Like, how thing. do you know what passion, what your passion yeah, is? So to use the example you were just using, like about the airport novels, right? Sure. Like there's a difference between saying I like McDonald's, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and saying to someone, well, if you like McDonald's, don't feel bad about the fact that, you know, once a week on, you know, Sunday after soccer or whatever, you get McDonald's on the way home. Enjoy your sure. fucking McDonald's. Don't feel guilty about it. There's a difference between that and saying to somebody, what you should do now is, you know, that movie suit besides me you should just live like uh, yeah, just eat course. mcdonald's for every meal right but you know like i'm saying like a lot of that is about being honest with yourself like knowing what's what's good for you and also understanding that you have a boundless capacity for passions like i have replaced certain passions with other passions and it's helped to but what i, I mean is like not indulge yourself. I'm not like saying you should be a hedon or a hedonist or whatever. 
what I'm saying is like, uh, never stop looking for things to like and never like personally, I've never stopped looking for different things that I might find interesting. And I've never like stopped looking to get to the next level. Like, you know, not, I don't go into every conversation thinking like we're going to reach a higher truth in this conversation, but like, you know, the kind of person I am is the person with people I really care about. I really do get into big conversation and I'm totally okay with that now. Like, you know, I, I don't worry so much that, you know, uh, other people won't want it. Like if they don't want it, they'll, you know, they'll let me know or disengage. But like, I've been really okay with my own desire to search for stuff. And that took a while. And, um, and ultimately it's paid off for me, which has kind of been a relief because I didn't really think it would like I always wanted to do comedy and like going for it was like something I never was sure about and like how young were you when you decided that you wanted to do comedy um 21 20 maybe 23 actually so that's 23 when you decide you want to do it is there a I started at 19 Okay, or, so or no, sorry, I started at eighteen or seventeen. But so, I, so I, I often say to people that, like, you know, again, this is complete bullshit, self mythologizing, right? That, like, you know, I go, well, you know, I started when I was like post uni, so like twenty two. That's how I got into comedy. But the truth of it is that I knew from like when I was probably you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, oh, eleven, that perhaps that I wanted to. Oh, eleven, but I didn't think it was a possibility till I was twenty three, and then I threw everything at it. I I threw everything into my first solo show. I saw my first show when I was 11. I saw this guy, Brian Regan. Yeah, like a, he, people might not know him who are Australian listeners oh to this God. podcast. Brian Regan is the, <laughs> by the way, you just have unveiled an exquisite oh. Justin Bieber. Yeah, I have a, a huge Justin Bieber shirt. Yeah, I, I mean, like the shirt, not Justin Bieber, but I do like Justin Bieber. <laughs> it's Bieber's from... <laughs> I unzipped a Ryan Adams hoodie to unveil a Justin Bieber shirt, which is like, you know. Which I is mean, like- I like that your clothing takes us on a journey much like your conversational touch points. You know? <laughs> Start with the Bokoff, end with Harry Potter. <laughs> but it really is like wearing a Ritz-Carlton windbreaker and then you undo it to reveal a Travelodge t-shirt. Like there's really nothing in it. <laughs> yeah, you distracted. <laughs> Before you're distracted by my poor choice of clothing, you were explaining that Brian Regan is a peerless genius of. Uh, so Brian Regan comedy. is one of the all-time great stand-up comedians. Like as a live performer, as a person who, you know, probably more than anybody else in the world, has built a career almost external to you know having that sort of TV eponymous show. TV show or uh, you know movie thing or whatever. He has literally just built it from being an amazing stand-up comedian. What an excellent way to describe some people massively successful people's careers. I say that without irony. An eponymous TV show, like a lot of, like I really respect people who, I respect a lot of those eponymous TV show guys, but I really respect like a guy like Regan who just built his audience from just being great at stand-up. And like Mulaney is my favorite. John Mulaney is my favorite comedian right now. And he literally had a TV show called Mulaney and it didn't work out. And I almost prefer it that way because I really like his stand-up. But like, yeah, I saw him at this show called Comics Come Home in Boston and I was 11 years old. And from that point on, I was obsessed. And I really did lean into the like uh, the passion of it. But I really, I didn't uh, fully tell myself I want to do it. And then I just, one day I just decided like, 
I'm going to take all the money I've saved. I'm going to invest it in this solo show. I'm going to do everything. And the excess money, I don't say this much. It's such a bad look, but fuck it. The excess money um, that I had left over after like putting my costs, uh, I went into a, a betting place in Bethnal Green in London, and I put money on myself to win the award. <laughs> Oh really? Not I put more money in other people, but like <laughs> <laughs> I put a lot of money on Steen Raskopoulos because because he had because uh, he had one here and Felicity Ward was like, oh Steen Raskopoulos is amazing, he's gonna win, and I was like, well I should have a backup plan, you know, right. just in case yeah. this doesn't Cover work out. Cover the field a little. Yeah, yeah, but like uh, you know, and he probably should have won. By the way, I saw his show. <laughs> I saw his show after the nominations came out, and I was like, whoo, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> dodged a fucking bullet there you know him and probably deserving candidates split the vote but like <laughs> it was that it was it for for me that that one investment in myself felt that paid off was like right this is how to do things this is how to and since then everything i've ever been okay at has been because i was like it was something i was super interested in and so i so, really see that as like a big sign um, and I believe in like, I don't believe in like, you put something out into the universe and it comes back. I believe that like, you know, if you're interested in something and it does come back at you, that's a, you know, that's a real cause and effect thing, right? Like there's nothing mystical about that. That's just like, you're better at stuff that you're interested in. So like find more of your interests and like live, live your life in a way where where you'd be interested in everything that's going on. And so like, I've totally tried to do that. Like, you know, I feel so fucking pretentious saying it, but this is a podcast about your personal philosophy. Yes. Yeah, like, absolutely. Not, okay, good. Yeah. But like part of my personal if, philosophy. To be honest, to never... the, the truth of it is that like, what I want is the, the little bit that makes you feel pretentious as well, because that's the bit that you normally wouldn't say. I would never tell so I would never use the words personal philosophy because my personal philosophy is that anyone who uses those words deserves to be mocked publicly immediately. If you say it's like this is my personal philosophy, my comedy recorder immediately hits hits the red button. It's like, oh, what are, what are they going to say? I'm ready for someone once said um to me like you know, well, my strongly held personal opinion is and they were being really serious and I just went <laughs> and they went what and I was like nothing but like to me it was such a line that you would never offer up it's like boxing and you leave your chin exposed for a minute and a half you're just like go ahead you know go ahead so well the big one is people talking about their personal brand Ooh. everyone has a personal brand now. Mm. so <laughs> you know what this is that invest in your personal brand but invest in an inward facing way yeah. worry about the way that other people see you it, in a car. Right. You, so you identify what it is that you think you know makes up you and then actually invest okay. in being oh god those we're, coming, we're coming back to who are you i oh, guess well i guess we are so hang on no, no, I, I, I want to circle back sure, firstly sure. just revisit a couple of things along the way sure 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 please um please. so john mulaney uh yes. brilliant stand-up comedian incredible uh so he had a TV show that didn't really work. It was you know, it worked fine, but you said something interesting on the way through was that you almost prefer as a consumer, not that you wish his career ill. You wish no. his career well. No, but he now yeah. has more time to concentrate on the thing that you like to see him do more than, like you know, for for example, to me to flip it the other way, just to use a more is 
I would love if Seinfeld stopped doing stand-up and went back to making his TV show because I love the TV show more than I like his stand-up, right? Sure, sure. That's fine. You're allowed to like one more than the other. Um, the Mulaney thing is funny because you're such a fan, but at the same time, there's a small part of you that wishes him ill. I'll use a better another example just to make the point that I'm trying to make. Although, is, can I add a caveat, a quick yeah. caveat to that, which is that I watched every episode of that show and enjoyed every single episode of it, and I thought the cast was fucking great, and I thought... I thought the writing was good and I thought it really worked and I really enjoyed it. And, but it was one of those things where like critics were like, we don't like this. And then it got low ratings and then everyone's like, we don't like this. People don't like this. But like, I really like this show, so I never got it. But maybe that's just because I'm such a blind Mulaney fan. So yeah, go ahead. to then go back to Brian Regan, because I just, uh, have you met him? Have you worked with him? Have do you, you? Do you know what? I probably shouldn't say this, but a few weeks ago, um, he's doing a thing and, uh, and I job interviewed on it. And as soon as I walked in, it was three. It was him and three other people I didn't expect to be in the room, and I admire all of them, and I never met any of them. It was him, a comedian named Jeff Cesario, who's one of the great comics of the 80s, 90s, and, I mean, he's still a great, great, great working comic. He's on, he's on the Larry Sanders show a lot, which is my favorite show ever. And, um, and uh, Regan was there. And so uh, during the course of this job interview... Um, I mentioned two bits that Regan had forgotten. <laughs> and uh, and he, he said, I don't think those are my bits. And then I started saying them. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Those are my bits. Yes, those are my bits. <laughs> and so uh, at the end of it, I was like, hey, I'm not sure whether or not to tell you this, but like I saw you when I was a really small child and I was a really big fan and I'm still a huge fan. And this is really cool. I'm really excited to meet you. And I'm so, and I knew that they weren't going to hire me. They were like, from the age of everybody else in there, I was like, the odds of me getting this job are pretty slim. But uh, everyone there was above 50. But I said, it's a real privilege to meet you. I'm really, thank you so much for taking the time. And, uh, and a few days later, uh, he said thanks a lot and was like really sweet. A few days later, I get a message from him on Twitter. And he goes, uh, he goes hey, I just watched your Conan set. And it was really funny. And I wanted to find a way to tell you. And uh I just I done Conan the next the day after I met him, and he went uh, he went yeah he's like that was great and uh, that was great and he said a few bunch of a few other nice things and like yeah that made that's why I do comedy you know I'm still a fan like and the best thing about traveling internationally and going to a place like Australia or the UK is like I got to see your show or Peter Hellier's show or Celia Picard, not Celia, I've Cel- seen Celia in the UK, but like Luke McGregor's show or what's the woman, Denise, uh, what's her face? Denise Scott. Denise Scott. I don't know who any of these people are. So I don't walk in there and go, the latest Will Anderson show better be good. Right. Like I just walk in and I get, and I see Will Anderson or like I get to walk in and see Peter Hellier. And so I get a really cool objective opinion and I also get to be blown away again. I get to uh, like imagine seeing Stephen Fry free of context to be like, oh, the encyclopedia is a person. <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, you don't know Stephen Fry. And you're like, no. What? But how do I not know Stephen Fry? Like uh, comedy, especially international festivals, they're amazing for that. Five or six times a month at this festival, I'm like, oh, I just didn't know that there's a great Icelandic comedian because why the fuck would I? But he's here for my consumption. Or you'll see a clown that blows you away. Or like Ann Edmonds. The first time I saw Ann Edmonds, we were talking about this a little before the podcast. I was like, oh, well, this is just like the funniest bitch alive. Like I've never seen 
any person who just like kicked me in the chest like this for an hour where I just was like laughing at like a stupid voice that was really well written. So like, yeah, that's that's stuff that totally pays off. That totally pays off for me. So I'll tell you a little story because yeah, I think please. you'll enjoy this story. Oh my God, please. Uh, so I'm in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm playing... Uh, Go Bananas? Do, doing a week... No, at... Um, uh, oh God. Hilarities. Hilarities. Uh, Nick and the crew who are very good to be there. And uh, we're down at the club and it's uh, me and a guy called Ramon Rivas. Do you know Ramon? Yeah, Ramon and I are, Ramon's, Ramon and I are living together in Edinburgh. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, he's okay. a great dude. Great yeah, dude. He, awesome dude. Yeah. And so he's a guy that I've worked with a bunch there and we became friendly. Yeah. And so one night after the show, uh, Joe Zimmerman is in town with Brian Regan playing like, you know, some theatre down the road. Yeah, oh, holy shit. And so Joe and we're all just like, you know, texting and joe's like hey come down and have a drink and i was like yeah okay right that'd be yeah we'd love to of course we'd like to go and have a drink with brian reagan you know like so we head down there and as we get there because the show's you know finished a bit late our show's finished a bit later than his show he is literally walking out of this like you know it's like they've got to go to the next city the next day it's late he's walking out of the hotel to leave as we're walking in and so we don't even say anything to him we just let him go but joe's still inside so we go inside and he goes, oh, did you see Brian? Brian just left. And we go, oh, we walked by him, but we didn't want to, you know, disturb him. And he goes, no, 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 he really wanted to meet you. So Joe goes out, grabs him. So Regan comes back inside for like two hours, takes us upstairs when they shut the bar, like just essentially has this private bar where he pays for everyone's so funny, drinks, isn't he? like talks to everyone, like wow. wants to know all about like, you know, your career and what's going on and why you're in town. And I'm like, I don't know this guy. Like, I mean, never met him before in my life and had... Like the generosity of him of spirit, but also like it was just one of those moments where you're like this for someone like that inspired you all the way back there to still be this kind of a amazing comedian, but be amazing, like generous human being who understood the idea. He intrinsically understood the idea that there was that this was a great night for us yeah and that he was but there was no sort of ego about that sure but he kind of honored that idea of going generous he was being generous with the idea of who he was and how exciting that was to us nothing's better than generosity you show generosity or receive generosity my favorite short stories i'm bringing a little highbrow again this guy tobias wolf and clearly he had a bad experience with a critic but he wrote this he wrote this show, he wrote this short story called Bullet in the Brain. It's one of my favorite short stories. It's about this critic and standing in line at a bank and the ba- and these guys burst into a bank and they rob they're robbing the bank and he mouths off to them because he's used to mouthing off with no repercussions because he's a critic and he gets shot on the head. And the the um short story after that is basically a random collection of me- memories triggered by the bullets going through his brain. And one of the, and he must have really hated critics because there's a lot like this dude's a sad motherfucker. But one of the lines in there was he had forgotten the pleasure of getting and giving respect. And uh, which is just like a vicious line to write about a human being. But like, I always think like a lot of comedy, especially laughing at another comedian is the pleasure of getting and giving respect. And like, I really think a good way, like this brings me back a little bit to my original point. Like, one of the reasons I think that it's so important to lean into your passions is because if you do that, you stay interested and you don't become jaded and you appreciate the moments of generosity from Brian Regan instead of like sitting there and going, 
well, he's playing this fucking, they're draining the Atlantic Ocean so that Brian Regan perform, can perform, <laughs> and I'm at a place with a goofy name on a Tuesday night for $150. Like, you know, you should be able to enjoy that moment with Brian Regan instead of comparing yourself to him. And I think people who who don't understand that they're doing this because they love it or doing something because they love it find that enjoyment much harder to get and find respect much harder to give and receive. And so, like, uh, yeah, like, that's why I really feel that way. Okay, um, we should just start finishing Wrapping up. up yeah. uh, but that always takes a while because there's a couple of questions I still want to ask you. Please. Uh, the first one is, um, it, it, what do you think happens when we die? Do you have a belief system around that? Do you think about death? Is death a thing that is, like, Every day? present in your thoughts? Um, I don't know what happens when we die, but I do think that there's something, mathematically, I think there's probably something going on. Because otherwise, it's just, like, cosmically, the odds of us being alive right now and being conscious right now seem really slim. Yeah. So if this was it, then uh, pretty decent shot in the dark for uh, for us to be alive now instead of during the Black Plague. Um, uh, so I think it's, uh, I, I don't know what happens or pretend to know what happens or even know if we're conscious or if this is like the only thing, but it seems a bit arrogant for me to just be like, mm, this is it. So I know that seems like weirdly the opposite of what a lot of people would think arrogant is, but like, yeah, I think there's, I think there's probably something else. I think it's probably a chapter two or maybe this is chapter seven or something. My favorite series of short stories and I'll plug, plug this is a book called some by this guy named David Eagleman. And it's not so much short stories as a series of 42 different conceptions of the afterlife. And like the first one is when you die, he says, all of the moments in your life that share quality are grouped together. So you sit in traffic for six years. You take one massive 20-year shower. You sleep for 75 years. Like, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those things. You, you know, you have, a, you have a, a two-hour orgasm. Like, it's like it's one of those... One of those things, you stubbed your toe for six days. like, And it's really funny and sharp and good. And Brian Eno loved it so much. He he created a score for it. And they performed it at the Sydney Opera House. But like, yeah, I think it made me think. If that oh, was my life, they'd be like, he watched a lot of Con Air. Why was so much of his life watching the movie Con Air? God, this guy better like Con Air because he's watching it for two years? Yeah, I'm always like, our lives are going to be really different, like, that boy, Alex Edelman, who spent two months rereading Ready Player One. He really <laughs> liked Ready Player One. But yeah, so that's what I think happens after we die. I think there's something going on instead of just, uh, you know, maybe not. Who knows? No, well, so I think that one of the things you've kind of hit on there is, and again, all I'm doing is this is confirmation bias. Sure, sure. But, you know, my my best guess, if you know, put on the spot to answer this question, is something along the lines of that we do not understand, you know, sure. why we are here. You know, that miracle in the corner of the universe thing. Yeah. Um, so the, the idea that there is something more than this that we also don't understand with our tiny human monkey brains. I really believe that, is yeah. at least something that you can go, well, that's as, as likely as any of the other possible scenarios. Sure, I really think something's going on, but that we don't n- know what it is. And I totally find atheism to be a, a totally fine perspective, like just that this is a cosmic accident. My dad's a really religious Jew yeah. and a really brilliant scientist. Like, you know, 
my hero in many ways. Like uh, he's given a really good TED talk, not like a TEDx talk, like a TED talk. Um, <laughs> TEDx doesn't count where they're like, oh, I gave a TED talk at TEDx Brisbane bathroom. And you're like, what? And he's like, well, it was like the one, it was like TEDx Brisbane, but it was in a bathroom. So like I've given my own TED talk and I'm like, doesn't count. My I dad. love that even the TED circuit has that kind of thing of like the comedians get pissed off when an open micer says they're a comedian. No, you did a TEDx, mate. Or when an or when a support <laughs> act is like, I played the Apollo and you're like, oh yeah, with who? Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, Jim Gaffigan was yeah. there. So. Jim Gaffigan and the Spin Doctors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a white pride event. <laughs> They mistook yeah, some of Jim's material. See why he's one of <laughs> see why he's been fucking one of the best for a long time. Because he never lets it go. Whereas I'm like this and know this and know this and like if I took 45 days of showers and I was onto the six minutes of stubbing my toe, I would have forgotten the showers by minute two. I'd be like, <laughs> what showers? There was a shower, and they're like, yeah, you're soaking wet still. You're naked. You're holding a towel. And I was like, I didn't know there was a shower. All I know is stubbing my toe. But yeah, fucking, I think that eight, my, I asked my dad why he believes in God. Yeah. And he's like, I'm a scientist. And I was like, yeah, well, shouldn't you not believe in God? He's like, huh. he's like, you think we picked the right card out of a 15 trillion card deck? He's like, I, he's like, I don't know. He's like, I don't believe in maybe a mono, like, he's like, not 100% sure in a monotheistic God. And I do think there is probably some really good atheist theory. I think it's called the watchmaker question. And I think there's a really good answer for it. Um, but I, I haven't read it and per, perhaps I should, but he was like something, uh, he's like, this is very elegantly put together. He's like, you look around and, uh, someone really put the puzzles of this together. So yeah, I do think a lot about life after death. One thing that one of those stories from some that really feels interesting to me and super relevant to what you said is this guy dies. He goes to wherever afterwards in this short story. And they say, well, what do you want to be? He says, I've always want to come back as a horse. We thought horses were interesting, majestic, and he starts to change into a horse. And as he's changing, he said, "He he wondered." The line is, "He wondered what majestic, what majestic, uh, misguided being had decided they wanted to become a human beforehand." And I'm always like, "Yeah, well, maybe that's uh, maybe there's something to that." We're like, you know, yeah. I think I think we can't comprehend is a really good answer to a lot of stuff. So, yeah. I like it. Uh, yeah, we don't know yet. Like, yeah. you know, I ask people every episode on this podcast, what do you think happens when we die? But I'm not ever expecting anybody to actually, you know, stumble upon the answer. And if they do, if 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 someone on this podcast absolutely nails it, then I won't please find start out reading the at replies until- <laughs> if somebody comes back to it. <laughs> just someone you didn't see a whole bunch of people be like, that will the last episode. <laughs> When Dave Anthony stumbled on the fact that, <laughs> imagine if it was like Dave Anthony that solved it, like just a great U.S. Well, comment, it's but. funny, funny that you should say that that you should bring up Dave Anthony because he hasn't been on this podcast yet. But we've done like seventy or eighty episodes of my other podcast that you've done, sure. Profob. Sure. And there is one episode in particular that is starting to take on mythological sort of. I've seen. Like it's it's from like three. It was from before the election, sure. and essentially Dave came on and we spoke about what was going on in America. And he's made in this podcast so many accurate predictions, predictions. Yeah, I've of seen, what I've has heard, come. I've heard this podcast as well. He talked about the gun control thing on the podcast. Yeah. He talked about like yeah the groundswell of support and like he's like people are going to march on Washington. And I remember when it happened, I was like, 
Oh fuck! Yeah, yeah well, there's people on the internet who've started to really subscribe really? to the idea that this one episode is like that Dave's some sort of Nostradavis, you know, who's like Nostradavis came up with it on the spot. That's... Hadn't thought of it before I started the my sentence. My friend, my friend but... David, my friend David, um, he predicted in Vanity Fair that Trump was going to win and exactly how he was going to win. So I called him, and he loves to remind me of this. He's coming to town for the last four days of the festival. So David, him. his name's David Burstein. He's a political commentator he's my age he's genius and he's run two uh, i should say unsuccessful campaigns for mayor of new york he's he's campaign run them but he's 28 so like he's really smart and he wrote this article about how trump was going to win through white people in the rust belt and i called him and he picked he, he likes to remind me of this i called up and he picked up the phone and i was laughing hysterically because I was like, there's no, I was like, you're out of your fucking mind. Hillary's got double digit leads in the polls. Trump's this goddamn mess. And then I went away to Cleveland for a weekend and I came back and I called him. I was like, oh, you're right. I was like, they hate, they hate her. And he's like, oh yeah. He's like, it's not even gonna be close. He's like, if you have friends in the UK and they want to bet on the election, have them bet on Donald Trump. He's like, he's gonna, he's gonna win. So when it happened, David very gracefully, you know, he did a few. He did a few talk show appearances where he was like, uh, mm, "Fucking told you so." But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like, like I totally. Some people, some people see this coming. Some people have weird lack of blinders that we don't have in certain areas. So you never know. Uh, well, someone may come on this podcast with a really clear sighted view of the universe and like just fucking crack it all open that would i want to listen to that part will you text me if that happens well i mean i imagine that these imaginary people that i imagine are giving me feedback about this podcast will alert me to that fact yeah of course (laughs) hey uh thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it um uh before we go i'll do a plug of the show obviously up the top but plug you know let's plug everything that can be plugged because people listen to this all over the place too america and in the uk and stuff so if you've got you know, various things going on in various places. Let people know about, you know, um, what you want them to know about. I've got Zanies in Chicago and my hometown of Boston. I've got shows at Laugh Boston and I'm putting some solo shows up. But really, I put everything on Twitter and Instagram religiously. And my, my Twitter is my name, Alex Edelman. And my Instagram is at the Alex Edelman. And I'm going to do, um, I'm doing Melbourne right now with a show called Just For Us. I'm going to do it in Edinburgh. Um, I would love to plug. I mean, obviously, people who have listened to this have listened to Telfop, right? Uh, no, not necessarily. Really, you should listen to that. Based it's on the numbers, the- there is an audience that enjoys this who do not enjoy. The, I really, uh, really, yeah. I really think if you haven't heard Telfop, it's one of the. Few, I only listen to a few podcasts. I'm really good about that, but I listen, and I don't. I'm not a completist because I don't have that kind of time. But I have listened to a bunch of those episodes. They're really good. There were some really good guest Charlies. Um, I also really like um, when you said plug. I know you just meant my stuff, but I no, think no, I, no. I like the the more broad plug. There's a really good book from the '80s called Replay, um, and I've been thinking about it just because of our conversation. It's one of my favorite books it's about this guy who dies on the first page um, at 45 uh, in his office at a radio station, and he wakes up at 18 in his dorm room. And then on the 30th page, he dies again at 45 on the same day and wakes up again at 18 in his dorm room. And the book's called Replay by a guy named Ken Grimwood. And I think it's one of those books that isn't the most popular book and probably should be more popular. Um, I love the movie Warrior, as I mentioned. Um, but my favorite movie that I don't think enough people have seen is Being There. And I thought it was I thought everyone had seen it. And now I'm aware that 
everybody that not everybody have you seen it no it's really good so yeah just those are the things that i would like to plug. okay so. uh, and now just for fun before we finish up uh you were at the winter olympics oh shit dude yes it was amazing my brother qualified for the winter olympics for israel in a sport called skeleton which was crazy and he was a guy who more than anything else sort of sums up that philosophy of he said, I like skeleton and I really like the Olympics and I want to go and I want to do nothing but those two things for a few years, which is a very privileged thing to do. But, you know, he got some sponsorship and we all gave a little bit of money, but he mostly went into debt. His name's AJ Edelman. He's, and he, he fucking did it. He qualified. And his best friends are all Australians. His, his, he couldn't afford a coach. So this guy, Heath, took him on as a coach and he couldn't afford a place to stay so this australian named john farrow who made the olympics gave him a place to stay and like it was so cool but i'll never go back to another olympics ever it fucking sucks why what do you mean well not to slander the fine people of south korea but i think what happens with a lot of these countries is they bribe their way into getting the olympics and they're like oh fuck where do we put it and then they they find a small mountain town or a place that doesn't really have the infrastructure or desire for an Olympics. And they're like, all right, here's $30 billion. Let's just like build, they built this high speed railway between Seoul, which is amazing. And this really dead mountain area called Pyeongchang or Gangneung. And uh, they put up all these like big glossy buildings, but like, it's like, it's very slapdash. It's like someone from Sims, didn't tear down the early stuff and just put up the space age shit. So like, um, also it's owned by corporate sponsorship. Like in that whole city, if you don't have, if you're, if you, if you don't have a visa credit card, you can't buy anything. They right. only take visa. And like, there are some places I walked in and tried to give cash. or like, we only take visa. And it was insane. Like I walked into a place holding a Coca-Cola that I had bought at a uh-huh. store and they went, sorry, only, or no, I bought a Pepsi, Pepsi and they're like, yeah. only Coke is allowed in here. And I was like, I only have Pepsi. And they're like, do you have McDonald's? And I was like, no. And they're like, you can only bring Coke and McDonald's in here. Like, <laughs> it was nuts. It was genuinely crazy. And lines are long and buses are long and it's poorly organized. The best bit is if you're, if you're American, you can sit down in any seat and no one says anything to you because you can just play the like dumb American card or the language card or the, I'm not, I didn't know I'm not supposed to be here card. So like <laughs> we'd buy tickets to events and then just go sit in the, the seats reserved for the Olympic committee. And because we're like, just like Americans, no one, everyone right. was like, Oh, they, they must be somebody. And so like this guy sat down next to me and my, my, my brother Austin nudged me and I was like, what? And he was like, Alex, that's uh that's Prince Albert of Monaco. And I was like, how do you know who Prince Albert of Monaco is? He's like, I just looked at his badge. It says Prince Albert of Monaco. And like, it was. I looked at my left. It's fucking Prince Albert of Monaco. And he nods at me and I nodded at him. And he's like, which Olympic committee are you with? And I said, we're Americans, which wasn't technically a lie. <laughs> I just find And like, he's talking about like, he assumes like, oh, a fellow rich. And so like, he's talking about like rich people shit and like, like, uh, and I had been like once to St. Moritz. I was like, have you been to St. Moritz? It's beautiful. He's like, he was like, yes, we don't, we don't, you know, like, it's like, it's like, you haven't been to the secret ski resort that only royalty knows about. You haven't been to Altenburg, Germany. And we're like, 
oh yes, we've heard Alton Brooks, but we do prefer St. Moritz. It's the working class, you know. Like it's just <laughs> so it's a playground for rich people. Everything's crazy expensive, but on the plus side, it's super vibey. Like people turn out so hard for their country's event. Like the Dutch own speed skating they own that sport it's theirs so you go to like the speed skating oval and it's just dutch dutch athletes dominating everyone for an hour which is kind of annoying if you're rooting for americans or israelis but like it's just you're in a sea of orange people singing their national anthem and it's hard not to really enjoy that but like the most surreal experience was understanding how south koreans feel about the north koreans they could not give a fuck about North Korea. Really? They are so bored from talking about it. And like I said to them, like, well, aren't you like, uh, like, what about your families that got split up? And this guy was like, oh, you mean 60 years ago? He's like, I don't know. He's like, my grandfather got over it 15 years after that. And he's like, so there's no one left. And I was like, well, what if they bomb you? He's like, uh, they're going to bomb Seoul, which is like 100 miles from North Korea. With what? And I was like, I mean, that is technically a very good point. And so they're like sort of inside a punching radius. They're like, they're, they're feeling cool about it in, under the don't shit where you eat rule. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they're like, why would they do that? And also like there are a whole bunch of spies here anyway. And like, it's not that big a deal. And you motherfuckers are obsessed with it. But we'd really wish that you'd stop antagonizing the president over it. But one thing they were really pissed off about was. They were psyched to host the Olympics. Every nation is psyched to host the Olympics, even if it's like a little poorly planned and conceived. And afterwards, they're like, what are we going to do with this speed skating stadium? There isn't a huge appetite for a speed skating stadium, but like they were psyched to host it. And then three weeks before the Olympics, the North Korean and South Korean governments announced that they were going to field a team together. And South Korea very fairly was like, no, like, this is our Olympics. And they're like, it's a United Korea. And they're like, we don't give a fuck about the United Korea because we never think about them. We don't interact with them. We get none of their culture. They get none of our culture. We don't get anything from them. Like, why are you having these people here? So, like, watching them interact with North Koreans is really interesting because they were annoyed that they were there. And, like, some people were taking photos of them, but, like, the North Korean athletes all sat separate. And there was one section... And this is the last story I'll tell, and then I'll let you guys go. But, like, we're sitting. Uh, I feel bad. I'm like, is this the longest podcast you've done? No, dear God, no. It's normally this long. This okay. is the right amount of time. All right, fine. Also, like, I asked you the question. Sure, sure. Don't feel bad about answering a question that I asked you. Sure, about. sure. But, you know, I'm sitting at this seat. <laughs> I'm very rare that this happens at the Olympics, but I'm sitting at the seat that I bought the ticket for. And uh, I'm not like, I haven't moved down because the events were empty because it's such a, it, such a corporate sponsored event. And if you ever watched on TV and you wonder like, why is this incredibly high pressure gold medal hockey game um, very poorly attended? It's because all the tickets go to corporate sponsors. And because of the maze of corporations, a lot of those tickets statistically, I'm told, never find their way to their intended targets. They just get lost in a mailroom. So, like, some of the most highly sought-after seats on the planet are sitting on some middle manager's desk for, like, McDonald's in Atlanta. And they barely know that they're there. And, like, they got them as part of a deal, but, like, couldn't find anyone to go. So they genuinely, like, have these tickets that just go begging. And it's really a shame because, like, you can't get into some of the events because they're highly sought-after. But I'm sitting in this seat, and I notice the whole section next to me is empty. The whole section. I'm like, that's a little odd. Then I noticed there are some guards guarding the section. I was like, that's even odder. 
and uh, and I go down and get a snack, and I come back, and 250 North Korean cheerleaders, gorgeous women who all look the same, um, like in their attire and in their like, you know, they all had like black hair pulled back into a very specific uh, hairstyle, and they all have the exact same makeup. They're all standing in a very strict line. And of course, I pull out my phone immediately and start like, you know, filming. And I ask one of them for a selfie and like they ignore, they like ignore me in a way that means like get the fuck away from me. And so I'm sitting next to, I'm sitting next to them. Like I'm sitting in this aisle. And so of course I start like filming immediately and they clap in perfect time and unison for everything. And it's like they knew what they were going to clap to. The North Korean figure skaters. It was pair skating. They skated to the Jeff Beck cover of A Day in the Life by the Beatles. And I kept thinking, like, how do they know about A Day in the Life, the Beatles, or the Jeff Beck cover? They were like, are we going to skate to the original? The Jeff Beck cover is vastly <laughs> Like, is Jeff Beck huge in North Korea? Like, I kept wondering all this shit. And they're, like, clapping along. And I noticed every time anyone pulled out a smartphone, the cheerleaders were like, <gasps> and I realized, like, oh, they don't have smartphones in North Korea. They're not allowed. And even the Olympics who got their packs, they were given a smartphone, but everyone in the North Korean delegation had their Olympic smartphones taken out before the Olympics. So they're clapping and they start to leave. And again, like this is who I am. So I get up to follow them to see what's going to happen, like what, what, what the deal is. So I follow them out and I'm trying again to like, uh, get a selfie and I'd asked the person sitting next to me, who spoke Korean. I said, how do you say, are you having fun in Korean? So they told me, so I really, really practiced it like again and again and again. And then I'm in the tunnel and they're all jammed in there. So I'm standing in there and I'm the only like fan in there with like the bodyguards and the woman, the, one of the bodyguards with a f- little surgical face mask, black face mask. He is glaring at me and I have my phone out and I'm filming at this point. I put it up on my Instagram stories. I went, um, are you having fun? And the woman looks at me. And then a woman next to her bursts into tears. And I was like, oh, they can't talk to me. Like, they'll go to a fucking mining camp if they speak to me. So, like, I didn't try to talk to them anymore. But, like, we get into the hall. And I'm filming, like, they did this perfectly regimented army-style lineup, like a battalion. Well, I think they called them the Army of Beauties. Yes, they are the Army of Beauties. It's exactly what they call them. Yeah, I was trying to remember. And they have these women who are sort of, like, the matrons. And they walk around, and if they've got a thing out of line, the woman will subtly like kick with their heel to like, like move them back in a line. And one of them was slouching. And I just remember my grandfather used to call this the educated finger. This woman walks uh, behind her; she's slouching a little bit, and she pokes her really hard in the back with two rigid fingers. And the woman just like straightens the fuck up. And I'm standing behind them, and they have these little flags in front of them. Uh, where the way the women were facing these little flags and the cameras would line up to take photos of these women and video of these women and one of the handlers would subtly wave the flag and they would wave in that direction for the cameras and then they start singing the national anthem and I'm behind them filming and I realize at some point like oh I'm the only person behind them filming I wonder if there are any cameras behind me and I look behind me and there are four bodyguards all staring directly at me and then I look back in front and I was like oh, I should be really grateful that these cameras are here because I was like, and then I, it was more, I was genuinely scared for a second. I was like, fuck. And I filmed it and I kept it as like a highlight on my Instagram story. So it's still there and you can still see like, I reversed the angle of the camera to catch the bodyguards Uh, behind me. And I was like, well, if I go missing, I want this like at least uh, like uploaded. 
and you just see the bodyguards look at each other as soon as they get on camera and one of them just like runs out of frame to like around to my left side and then I start to like sidle out of the fucking area to my right and as soon as uh, I put my camera down one of the bodyguards just um, literally pins my left arm against my side and he shoves me out of the way and like and I, I've like I've been looking like online occasionally to see if I can like get a clip, but like I was standing among those, and I felt so bad for them. I was like, these people have just the they must just have the weirdest lives, and they didn't even get to enjoy the Olympics. They put them on boats in the harbor so that to make sure none of the beauties defected, they'd sail the boats to the harbor port or like to a dock. They put them on buses on the dock. They took the buses to the Olympic venues and loaded them from the loading dock onto uh, on into the venues. The buses all had heavily tinted windows where you couldn't see out of the buses, but you could see into the buses. So people were like, so these women didn't even see South Korea. They just saw this boat and then the bus on the dock and then they got in. So like all the culture that they would have experienced is like, and I hate to like bring it back to my, fucking philosophy but like no that'd be a really neat button on the end of a the really episode. neat button so like could... like you know like i understand that like leaning into your interests is like a very first world privilege but like yep. not everybody has it like you know i think a lot about amish kids like have you heard of rum springer oh this is the sort of you have a year off right yeah, some that... people have a year some people take two days 90 right. something percent of them go back it's a break from being amish break from being amish everybody does it at 16 and i'm always like you should live every day like it's your own like little room springer. You should live every, like, because not everybody, and, like I'm from a culture that like some people think is a little bit repressive. I'm an Orthodox Jew. So like certain things are close to me. Like I've never had, I love food, but I've never had pork or shellfish and stuff like that. And like, those are small complaints. Those are middle-class complaints. But like, there are a whole lot of people who aren't able to like explore their interests and if you have that luxury or even if you have a limited luxury like it is worth your time and effort to like reach out and totally like try to grab at something it's that that you like like it's super healthy it super works like i'm not saying eat mcdonald's every day or like just play video games like there is a healthy balance but like i think it's the key to living a like Really happy, pleasurable, modern life. So, like, yeah, that's my little, uh, that's my fucking little thing. <laughs> it's, you know, but ultimately, I'm just a farm boy who's managed to convince people <laughs> that he's, when you really fucking boil it down, I'm just a Jewish farm boy who's convinced people that he's an annoying Jewish farm boy. <laughs> All right, we're done. Thanks. Thank you, Alex Edelman. Thanks.